Hello, and welcome to a special podcast release of Intrigue Explains Discussion of COVID in China. My name is Dimitri, and I'll be joined in this recording by my co-host, John Fowler, who spent years in China as an Australian diplomat. Really do hope you enjoy it and find it useful. In 2023, we hope to release all of our episodes as podcasts, but for now, please enjoy this special pre-edition. What I'd like to do with this show is really kind of a from the basics and the history all the way through to some of these pressing questions that people have. But I wanted to begin with you kind of right at the start with this. So in the West, our COVID experience was COVID hits, it starts promulgating spreads. We institute lockdowns at various kind of levels and configurations to try to slow the spread and prevent our medical system from being overwhelmed. We develop the vaccine and begin vaccinating our populations, starting with the most vulnerable. Lockdowns are gradually drawn down as the vaccination rate goes up, though at times they're reintroduced when there's a big surge of cases that lead to hospitalization. And now in much of the West and in much of the world, COVID is still with us, but I think very much a an afterthought in the lives of many people. I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but it, it is certainly not in our face the way it is in China. What was What was the Chinese experience? Why aren't they not out of this, but why aren't they where we are? That is a huge question to start off with. Let me, let me start by saying that there will be a lot of things that I say here that are based on best guesses, reports from folks that I know who lived through this, people who watch China a lot. The, the sheer fact is that a lot of things in China are unknowable. And, and while it seems like a cop out to say, oh, we don't know, or no one really knows, that isn't kind of just prevarication because I don't want to be wrong. It's, it's the best answer. And anybody who tells you that they know what's going on in China, this is something that I tweet about fairly constantly is anybody, if you're, if you're looking to find out information on China, anybody who thinks they know what's going on in the minds of, you know, the communist party or officials or, you know, understands exactly what's happening. If they give you a definitive answer, you should distrust them because it is unknowable. So that, 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 I just want to give that caveat at the top. And I think everyone will become a much more educated China watcher, interpreter, if they kind of keep that idea in mind. So with that said, the, the Chinese journey in, in COVID has been fairly different, really, to, to the West. Obviously, the virus breaks out in, in Wuhan in, I think, actually, did you say to me earlier that this is the anniversary of, it is of the, uh, it the, is doc, the, the doctor announcing it? It is the three-year anniversary of the first confirmed case of COVID in China today. Three, three years. According to God, a tweet no. I read, and so it must be true. Oh, right. Uh, right. Elon Musk wouldn't build a platform that doesn't have truth. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that it's, there's a lot of speculation that it was October, November, December. Obviously, the doctor raised the alarm in, actually, I think now that I think about it, it was more like January or February when he raised the alarm. But anyway, we're, we're about three years into this whole thing, roughly. So, China, obviously, they locked down fairly quickly in Wuhan. Wuhan became a, a city which was an island, really, like a, a medieval kind of besieged fort. I know that our colleagues in the foreign service were getting Australians out of Wuhan with like emergency flights and it was really, really locked down. The idea being just to contain the virus, let no one in or out of China. I mean, that, that's another thing to mention. The borders 
basically stopped then and there. You know, it's been very, very, very difficult to get in and out of China for the last three years. But once that initial wave went through, I think it was probably summer of 2020, there wasn't much COVID in China, or at least not that we know of, certainly not public, you know, public outbreaks, big outbreaks of it. And so people in China, you couldn't get in and you probably couldn't leave, or if you wanted to leave, you couldn't get back. But they largely lived normalish lives for a long time. I don't have the dates of when it sort of was free and when it went to shit again. But you know, a lot of my friends in Shanghai were saying, "Oh boy, it looks really bad." I was in London in, in the Christmas of 2020 when you know the lockdowns were pretty brutal in in London and, and a lot of the world. And a lot of my friends in China were really sort of saying, "It's not the case here." Yeah, we we had friends. We had friends from Wuhan who were like, "We've just had pool parties." Like where right. like everybody's everybody's raving, yeah, and and that tells you be, you know better than any state media or media report that there wasn't a lot of COVID in China in those days because the, the 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 government just wouldn't have let that happen if there was. Yeah. So fast forward, you know, you you gave the outline of the Western experience in COVID, with COVID. Fast forward to say again, my 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 dates are going to be a bit hazy here, but let's say sort of start of winter or let's say autumn twenty twenty one. COVID starts to reemerge. The Omicron variant. I think that was around about October 2021. That starts to become a problem. It starts. It's obviously a lot more transmissible,、mm-hmm. and it starts to hit. It, it gets loose in China. Now the problem there obviously is that China has been largely free, so no one has had natural immunity buildup. They don't have vaccines. I think you were. T- we were talking about this before the show that the Sinovac vaccine is. I shouldn't say they don't have vaccines. The vaccine is. Far less effective than its Western mRNA counterparts, and we can we can get on and talk about that. But in the fall of 2021, China is faced with this problem of no one's really immune, no one's vaccinated to a level that would allow them to kind of not take it super seriously, and you've got Omicron threatening to run wild in a huge population. So they move to this policy over the next little while of locking of just locking down. They call it dynamic COVID zero or zero, yeah, whatever. And it's this idea that once once you detect Even a case, you find everybody who knows that person, and you lock down that entire region, and you do not let them leave. And and that's when we start to see the videos coming out of China. You know, earlier this year, of huge warehouses full of patients on beds, many of which have been woken up in the middle of the night to go to these quarantine centers because someone, you know, four floors down and seven buildings across tested positive. Because the Chinese officials were just so just so determined not to let the virus run away, so they would lock it down to prevent the spread, and hopefully that would that would help it. Again, fast forward to fast forward to now, and that has been largely the case for twenty twenty two. China has been in some, well, not, I shouldn't say China. I should say the big cities, Shanghai, Guangzhou, other places like this, have largely been locked down for most of this year. In and out, and Beijing,、mm-hmm. in and out, like but. Living under the threat that a lockdown might come at any minute. Maybe, maybe I'll leave it there just because I've been talking for a while and there's plenty to unpack there. But the, the Chinese experience is sort of all not not a reverse, but it goes from being far more freer to now still going back to lockdowns now three years later and serious lockdowns. And so, so the zero COVID policy is basically this attempt to, as soon as there is a spark of COVID anywhere, you. Quarantine them. You quarantine everyone they've ever met, and you attempt to basically try to maintain zero COVID. Now that you often hear referred to as a beyond just a kind of medical strategy, it's often conflated as a political 
objective and a particular political marker for the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Now, for those Mm. who don't follow China at all, before we kind of get into that, who is Xi Jinping? Sort of where does he come from? How is he different to other Chinese presidents? Can you give us the, the Cliff's Notes? Yeah, the Cliff's Notes real quickly. He came to power as General Secretary of the Communist Party in 2012. You know, he, he came to power amidst a almost a schism in the Communist Party, but he managed to kind of win power. And then over the next sort of, I wouldn't say immediately, but over the last 10 years, he's fairly systematically shown himself to be ruthless, believes deeply that the Communist Party must be the center of everything in China, the center of people's lives, the military, all that kind of stuff. He's dispatched enemies. You know, I, I think a lot of a lot of the Western media will say that Xi Jinping is like an evil dictator or anything like that. But he came to power in a China that was incredibly corrupt, that was losing the, tr- I mean, that had lost to the extent that it can lose the trust of the people, that it wouldn't be corrupt, that it wasn't acting in its own interests, that kind of stuff. And he he came to he came to power at this moment where China was either going to become far more liberal, like many in the West had hoped, but that was going to be an incredibly messy process. And it probably spelt the end of the Communist Party at some point in the near future, near to medium term future, or it was going to go down the opposite road, which was reasserting control and being and being quite, you know, the China that we see today. I think the, the scale of that has surprised people that Xi Jinping was so ruthless in dispatching his enemies, so has managed to consolidate so much power in what is a relatively quick time. If you think about going from not in charge at all to now being essentially the leader for life, piece of context there is that you know there's been a tradition in China since Mao died of leaders essentially taking two terms at the top and then retiring and becoming an elder statesman. He has done away with that convention, so he is now just started his third term as the president of China and people think he will essentially rule for as long as he likes. So he, he really, it is a return. He, he is the, by far the most powerful leader since Mao Zedong in China. And Mao died in 74, I want to say, 70, around then. So, you know, that's the context of Xi Jinping. He's an incredibly powerful, authoritarian leaning leader. And the zero COVID policy is his baby? Is he associated with it? Oh yeah, he's a, like that is one hundred percent his policy, and that's why I think you see a lot of the problems with winding it back, and you see such a steadfast adherence to it is that he has attached his name very closely to it. You know, there's a lot of stories about people say that oh, it's just a way for the, the Chinese Communist Party to increase surveillance because they get this excuse of like oh, we need to know where you are, we need to lock you down because of the virus, but actually it's this nefarious plot to further control people. Obviously, those things are happening, but I think it's a bit of a reverse situation. It's a it's a chance for the Chinese Communist Party to build out those tools that they will then further use to monitor people. But, you know, I think it's a bit crazy to sort of say that Xi Jinping invited this problem on or is happy about this problem and instituted dynamic COVID zero to be able to, to control the people. That's probably a bridge too far. It, I, think, I think it's just the simplest answer here is that, you know, the Communist Party gets a lot of its legitimacy from being able to say it protects the people. It does a better job of protecting the people than American, Western, European societies. Look at them all dying over there because they can't agree on masks and they have fight about every last damn thing. The Communist Party of China takes care of you and this is why we do this policy. But the minute his name is attached to it, it becomes a thing that can't easily be unwound. Right. It sort of rises to the level of scripture. And yeah. no one wants to be the first one to to tell someone as, as powerful as Xi Jinping that maybe this isn't working so well, exactly. which is why it's 
But I think, t- to be fair, and this is something we were discussing before the show, the, it's not purely a political stubbornness that's keeping this in place. There are some structural kind of... Medical's probably the wrong term, but immunological reasons to do with population density and hospital bed ratios that are also make China relaxing these lockdowns not necessarily an easy option, even if you take politics out of the picture. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I And it goes to what I was just saying then, that it, it starts from a very dynamic zero COVID. Let, let's remember, that's not a hugely different policy at the theoretical level than the UK instituted or, mm-hmm. you know, part, parts of the US and Australia, for example. The idea that you want to keep people inside and stop the spread of the virus. So it starts from a, a place of wanting to not let this virus kill lots of people. Yep. And, and as you said, you know, there is a political element, like the way China works as a, as a society is very different to the West. There is very little autonomy you know, the autonomy from the bottom is the lo- the lowest. And you slightly get more decision-making power as you get to the top, but no one really can do anything until the person above them says, okay. So there's no, there's no ability for regional differences in policies. So there is a political element of dynamic COVID starts off as a, as a, as a legitimate policy aimed at good things. It can't really be changed politically. But then also, as you just said, if... COVID got out in China right now, it would be a humanitarian disaster. That's what people say. You know, they've got fairly low vaccination rates still, particularly amongst the elderly in China, the most vulnerable, obviously. Their Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines are less effective at preventing and, you know, lessening the symptoms than their Western counterparts. And that that bears mentioning because Xi Jinping very early on, I think probably as a political reaction to the Western accusations that, you know, COVID came out of a lab in Wuhan that the Chinese got very offended by, he basically swore off any foreign vaccine. He said, we're never going to take these mRNA things. We don't trust them. We can do better in China ourselves. We're a great country, yada, yada. And so the, the result of that is that they have developed a vaccine, but it's less effective. So they have... Less, as I said earlier, they have less natural immunity in the in the in the in the country because they haven't had COVID run rampant in the way that we have in the West, which is again, I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's just the reality that that's that's what happened in the West, and China hasn't had it. They have less effective vaccines, meaning that people who haven't had it are less likely, sorry, are more likely to get it than they are in the West. And then the last thing which you mentioned is that Chinese healthcare system is really not up to scratch. I think one criticism I heard Bill Bishop who is a very noted, famous China analyst, he said that, you know, the time for, if Xi Jinping had had his time again, he would have demanded they build hospitals and beds two or three years ago to deal with this situation now, the coming out of COVID, because they haven't done that. And if COVID ran wild, their hospitals would be utterly swamped. And as I said, it would be a humanitarian disaster. And from there, if the, if the legitimacy of what you do is protect the people, that's why the Communist Party takes away so much control from your life is because we protect you. You look out the window and people are dying in the streets because Omicron's run wild or whatever it is. It becomes a political problem then. So it starts as a political decision. It kind of goes through all these realities. And then the reality at the other end too is that it becomes a political decision again. Right. If you get, if you get my, I mean, it's kind of hard to no. fathom that, but everything is political in China. Even if the actual policies are designed to stop people dying, everything is seen through a political lens. Yeah, and and you can't separate these things from 
questions of national pride, questions of the party, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party. National security, exactly. Exactly, national security issues, state kind of the party's perennial paranoia, which in some ways, I guess, you know, these protests were to a very minor degree, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party lives in fear of a popular, of color revolutions, not to the yeah. same extent that the Putin regime does for Putin. It's sort of the sole well, motivating factor do. in life. Really? I think it is. You know, I think the Communist Party's founding paranoia is is revolution. They're a revolutionary party. They mm. they are chief chief amongst their concerns is someone like else doing it to them. And obviously Tiananmen Square is only, you know, that's this generation of leaders were coming of age in the Communist Party, you know, sort of I guess they would have been what, 30-ish, 30, 30, 40, you know, doing their first jobs in middle management in the Communist Party system when Tiananmen Square. And so they're very, very, very scared of color revolutions, of student revolutions in particular. Yeah, and we haven't talked much about the protests. We've got, given a lot of background on COVID in China, but these protests, so I guess there's a couple of things to mention here. These protests definitely scare the Communist Party because they are scared of protests full stop. They are happening amongst young people and the students and the Chinese party. Well, I think any communist party understands that students are where the ideological hotbeds mm -hmm. of dissent happen. And, you know, you have to indoctrinate people early. So they're scared because it's university protests. And then the third thing I think that that is, is unique. I mean, most people don't understand that in China, protests happen every day. They really do. Like mm. hundreds and hundreds of protests all around the country, but they're small and they're isolated and they're about discrete issues often with local government. So it's, right. you know, the local government stuffed up some planning stuff or they or there's corruption amongst a, a local businessman and he screwed a bunch of people and they didn't get their apartments. And hundred, hundreds of people will go to the local Communist Party offices and they will protest. And the, and, and the Communist Party is pretty good at dealing with it, right? Like they... They don't use shows of violence most of the time. They will go away and have very strong conversations. And I'm using a euphemism there with mm -hmm. the leaders of those protests. They, they will disappear, put, frank, put it quite frankly. And I went to a lot of towns when I was a diplomat in China where you would hear this phrase, oh, yes, the, you know, the, the public security officers came and took them to tea, you know, invited them to tea. And that's when, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're an instigator, you will be, you know, taken away to a and had a very, a very stern conversation with, and, and you will be reminded not to do that kind of stuff. But protests are not uncommon. They're just not linked like this. So, mm -hmm. you know, it might be a rural thing in, 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 in I'd say, Lanzhou in Western China. It might be a, a, a heating thing in Dongbei up in the north of China. It might be all these different things, but nothing like this, where all those places are having protests about the same thing, ostensibly coordinated. And that's what scares the Communist Party, particularly, you know, I don't, I don't think we should oversell how big these are. They're, they're in the hundreds mostly, and you know, the Western media is incredibly good at picking up any of this kind of stuff and making it seem like it's, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution, nineteen eighteen, all over again. That that you know, famous photo of like fifty photojournalists gathered around like one burning, like like one burning exactly. piece of paper or, or like one yeah. brick or something yeah exactly right and, and you know and the other thing too is that most of these images come out of places like shanghai shanghai has always been the most western most international city in china it is by the chinese sort of power brokers seen as like a concession to the outside world they kind of let shanghai be shanghai as long as the trouble stays in shanghai and is managed it's it's kind of a a different vibe of a city it's a very different culture to the rest of China and most of the photos, you know, this image that we're seeing here looks very much like to me, yeah, like the Yan'an Road in Shanghai. So 
it's not surprising that this is happening in Shanghai. It also doesn't mean that it should be extrapolated as, you know, a mass movement, but that's the context. But the other side is that it's not nothing either. It's incredibly brave to do what those people are doing because you're, you're risking your life and your, and your livelihood and your family's lives. And, and there was a spark to this, right? The, these began from a vigil and can you give us a little bit of background on what happened there? Yeah. So details are pretty sketchy about this. And I only really know what I've read in the Western media. I don't have any sort of inside knowledge on it, but Urumqi, which is the capital of the you know infamous province of Xinjiang out in Western China, where all the Uyghurs are and, and you know all the human rights issues that have been going on there. There was an apartment building that's, that caught fire, not, you know, just an electrical failure or something like that. But 10 people died because allegedly fire brigades weren't able to get there in time because of COVID restrictions. And the COVID restrictions in China aren't, please stay inside and, you know, hand, yeah. hands, face, space, all that. It is, we board up neighborhoods with physical barriers and tape your doors shut. And there was, there was this feeling that those kinds of very, very restrictive COVID measures caused people to burn alive in their houses. So there was a protest or at least, as you said, a vigil. There was a lot of social activity saying that this was, you know, COVID zero policies were the reason these people burned alive. And then it kind of spread from there. It's obviously not about that. It's, it's, that's, that's the spark on the kindling of what we talked about. Two, let's call it 18 months of incredibly restrictive COVID lockdowns. So there's a lot of kindling there. A lot of people, a lot of frust- a lot of frustration. Business owners have gone, you know, had their businesses shut down overnight because someone in the same neighborhood had COVID. Like it, that's what's causing the protests. But that spark was this seemingly egregious example of of government, you know, policy. And I think it's it's important to, as you were alluding to there, that the Chinese lockdowns are in many ways just would be unrecognizable to many of us in the West, even just kind of looking at, you know, you would be trapped in an apartment for, you know, 150 days with without access to anything. It's not this kind of you can walk your dog and a policeman give you a might move you on if you sit down on a bench and then you go and post like, I don't want to minimize how hard lockdowns were in the West. For many people, they were obviously hugely isolating, but people are throwing themselves out of windows in, yeah. in, chi- in Chinese high rises. And I, I had friends, expat friends who were in Shanghai for lockdowns, who were very, very worried about running out of drinking water because you can't drink tap water in, in, mm-hmm. in Shanghai or in China. And they were down to their last bottle and there was no way to get drinking water. And you know that those people's experiences would have been the best experiences of people in China because they're expats in China. So the idea that they were kind of getting very concerned of, you know, a, a basic human need of drinking water not being able to be found or, or acquired because in the middle of a huge city because of these rules. Well, then ma- imagine what's happening in a particularly, you know, in a rural province with a particularly zealous enforcer at the local level where, and, and this has happened, you know, people can't get medications for psychiatric illnesses, for blood pressure, for all the, the scale of what we're talking about is that, that you, you, you can't imagine how many people have died directly because of lockdowns. We say that a lot in the West and trying to count the cost of lockdowns economically. And all, but like in China, it's magnitude more. Yeah. And I think it's so hard to wrap your head around the scale of China. You were talking about sort of local, local protests, but there are provinces in China that have a population greater than sort of big chunks of Western Europe. I think I was looking oh, at yeah. it, like Guangzhou has a population of, or the province Guangzhou is in, has a population of like 150 million, 
which is France plus Germany. These mm-hmm. are gig- these are there are cities there with populations larger than Australia. Oh yeah, and, and so, Beijing and Shanghai together is about the UK, like give or take. It's it's sort of the amount of power a mayor would have, and when mm-hmm. I think a lot of the political incentives within the Chinese Party system are, you don't want to be the person who seems to be enforcing zero COVID, Xi Jinping zero COVID with less ardor than your neighbor is I suspect the way that the incentives are structured. So it's horrific. One thing, so so just real quick, history, a lot of comparisons with Tiananmen Square, obviously, because I think this is, as you say, these protests happen all the time, but this is the first time we're seeing it all over the news. Are those comparisons fair? How does this compare in size and breadth? I'll try and be quick here because I know we've got some Twitter questions that we want to get to. Look, no, I, I, I think it's apples and oranges, really. You know, the 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 through line is that it's probably just everyone has that reference to hand. Things have changed so much since 1989 that, you know, I don't know what parallels you can really draw other than they are protests in China that are protesting against government policies. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, you know, Tiananmen Square was far, 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 far larger. You know, I think we're talking hundreds of thousands. You know, my, my, my memory of the history is a little sketchy. So if I get the numbers wrong, forgive me, but it's hundreds of thousands. The government really reached a, a breaking point where they either decided to kind of give in to the students or do what they did, which is roll the military in and, and kill, again, thousands of people. You know, I don't think there's any suggestion that the military will be rolled out at this stage because, again, the protests now in China are much, much smaller, even though the images make it look, you know, again, <laughs> that whole thing that you said about, you know, Western journalists, you know, if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're thirsty in the desert and someone throws you a drop of water, you drink it real quick. And that's kind of what Chinese, like journalists in China are. They're starved for exciting information because it's such a controlled environment. So the protests are a lot smaller than you might be led to believe. Again, not to say they're not big, like important, but they're not huge that would need the military to put them down. And obviously the biggest change between 89 and now is that the Chinese government has built this incredibly hardened technological and physical security apparatus to control people everyone has a everyone has at least a phone in china and that is a walking tracking tag it can listen to you it can it can see where you are it knows what messages you're seeing it it, it, and and can control what you see and then there's a physical infrastructure in the biggest cities like there's facial recognition cameras are basically on every corner in every big city so they don't need to roll out the military and kill people they can you know until it gets to sort of uncontrollable levels of people and we're not seeing anything close to that you know they'll they'll roll out the tactics that they've been spending two decades honing which is go to where the protests are flood the zone with you know hundreds if not thousands of police physical police people in the places where people are protesting don't let them congregate and then slowly behind the scenes go to the people that you think are instigating are the ringleaders and pick them off behind the scenes you know disappear them or at least have strong conversations and that's how they that's how they do it so I, you know there's a lot of differences between it and I, and I don't think there's many similarities that you can really say yeah i mean they 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 were there for Tiananmen Square and they didn't like it and they've spent 30 years thinking okay well, they, they made we... an indelible choice yeah. then that, that was the modern China was not going to give into that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a real fork in the road and you can't go back. Right. In terms of kind of looking forward, I've heard people say sort of Xi doesn't necessarily have great options here in terms of what to do next, because with the lockdowns in the West, it was a holding tactic until we could get enough people vaccinated with 
mRNA, which seems to have had an effect. In China, that doesn't necessarily, that same logic may not necessarily hold for a bunch of reasons we've discussed. So his options are to repress these protests or to relax restrictions in a way that, in a way that could lead to sort of more death. Are there other options? What What is he? Yeah, I think, I think the, the hope, look, I mean, again, I'd say what I said at the start of this, who knows, we're mm. playing amateur psychology in people's brains that you'll never know and, and are basically unknowable to anybody who isn't in the room, which is, you know, 10 people. My, my suspicion is that there was probably not a sense that it would last this long and be this destructive and, and require this kind of, this kind of, you know, these kinds of lockdowns. So I think that they probably miscalculated at the start about the exit being more like, oh, we'll develop a vaccine that just solves this problem and then we'll be able to move out of it. They haven't ha- they haven't been able to develop the vaccine. It's hung around for longer. It's getting more, more transmissible and there's no natural immunity. So I don't think they predicted any of that necessarily. And I think the way out for them in over the last year or so has been to kind of just wait the virus out. And maybe they miscalculated how how much the Chinese people would put up with. Maybe they overestimated their their position vis-a-vis Chinese people don't protest anymore because we've made it very clear that that's not acceptable or we will know about it and we'll be able to stop what they might be right like we might be having this conversation in two months time and Xi Jinping's policy of lockdowns this is a blip and otherwise people go back to being locked down and you know Mm. they still lock down in 2024 and you know that might be a we don't know my sense is that something is changing I think that this has been a little bit of a shot across the bow that they need to certainly not give in because you can't do that in in a you know in a system like china but to gradually say you know firstly blame people below you that's the key blame local officials for overzealous implementations of what is a very very good to a policy but mistakenly implemented at the local level which is you know that's 101 that's chinese communist party 101 also my leadership style but Exactly, exactly. I was going to say yeah. i should be fair to the communist party human 101 yeah <laughs> so that will be i think the, the, the way that they sort of explain the more gratuitous effects of the policy. And then you're just starting to, when you're watching China, one of the things you've got to do is see what the government official propaganda says. That's the best cue for where the direction is going because they're very skilled propagandists and they understand that you have to prep the ground of propaganda for a period before you make changes so that everyone is kind of moving in that direction anyway. You can't just kind of come out one day and make a decision and then post hoc say, oh, well, this is the propaganda that goes with it. You have to prepare the right. ground, right? So you look at that propaganda and, you, and, it, and it gives you little hints about where they may be going. And there's some propaganda changes in the last literally days mm-hmm. saying, A, local officials need to chill out. <laughs> B, we're starting to believe that it's getting less deadly that we may have to live with the virus a little bit more. This quote these... from the vice premier, Lan, saying the virus has She's the COVID czar, yeah. The weakening pathology of the exactly. virus. I don't and know. That's the kind. Yeah. I don't know how, how immunologically the... that, that argument is supported, but. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Like for them, yeah. like it's what, if they say it, then that's the, that's the truth yeah. in China. But that's the kind of signaling that you've got to be watching for to sort of suggest, ah, okay. So maybe they're starting to realize that we can't keep locking down people indefinitely that we're going to have to allow some level of community transmission and people are going to have to live with it. Now, it's going to be a real tight rope for them to walk with all the things that we talked about in terms of hospital beds and you know, lack of immunity and old people dying. But 
the signs are like I think over the next couple of months, and I don't. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone on this. I've talked to a lot of people who who, who agree. Over the next, it's a very dangerous period mm-hmm. for the Communist Party leadership over the next couple of months, and there's a very fine line that you know they might not be able to walk. Of course, when I say they might not be able to walk it, I'm not talking about protests and bring down the government. That's not reasonably for that's like not a thing that will happen. I'm just talking more about they lose esteem and Xi Jinping loses his like sheen of being making all the right calls which mm-hmm. he has in China you know a lot of people in China love him they lose some credibility and people openly start to say shit I don't know like they really botched this and that's a big deal for the Communist Party and lastly I'll just say one more thing I know we're running a bit late but Jiang Zemin died well yes, people don't know when he Weirdly, they don't know when he died. There was been rumors for like three weeks when he died. He could have been just propped up in the corner of his house for a while. But and don't put it past the Chinese to do that. But anyway, they announced he died. Yeah, yesterday or and he is the former. So he's the he was the leader in the nineties. Yeah, that's right, in the nineties. So it was Jiang Zemin, then Hu Jintao, then Xi Jinping. Roughly in decade blocks, he was from Shanghai. He was open-ish to the West. He spoke English pretty fine well, I shouldn't say that he spoke enough English to be like you know oh yeah we could have a conversation he gave you know interviews to the western media and he grappled with a lot like that that was the height of the western like oh China's gonna liberalize w- I think he was in charge when they entered the WTO mm-hmm. so that was the era of of his leadership and two things to say about that one a lot of people are looking at COVID lockdowns and longing for that period and thinking what if you know so like saying oh it was better in the 90s when there was a promise that we might be more like the west I shouldn't say a lot of people some people the protesters and the second thing is and and you will know this well given your experience and your and your knowledge of Russia and and Ukraine and all the Soviet stuff that when a leader dies death of Stalin stuff Mm -hmm. it presages like presages how do you say that word presages whatever Pre-sa- don't don't come to us for pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. It um, it may foretell instability behind the scenes. Obviously, he was really old and he wasn't in power. Right. But it still gives people a bit of a shake up and something to cling to and like a, 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 like a symbolic like you know things are getting worse and now Zemin's died the, the, the last bastion of stuff. So yeah, I, I saw somebody compare him to George W. Bush during the Trump era. Where people during the the Trump era are like, boy, I sure yeah. do, I sure do pine for the days of sensible Republicans, like a right, guy right. who invaded everywhere. And you're like, no, right. no, I think you might be rose-colored glasses a little bit. Nostalgia, right? Yeah, I think it's 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 dangerous to oversell what a shining, starry-eyed liberal he wasn't. Sort of a a UC Berkeley intersectionality scholar kind of. No. Right. Okay, so let me rapid fire some Twitter questions at you. Yes. Generally kind of speed rounding some of this stuff, and I'll pitch in when I can sure. too. Okay, so from Viola Tricolor on Twitter, what are the biggest and in their consequences most dangerous misunderstandings Western politicians have regarding China? And you can give one. What's the biggest thing people don't get about China in the West? I don't. I mean, there's not one thing. I think that, okay, I think this is a bugbear of mine, is that, and you hear people talking about this all the time, quite fawningly, that China is all see like the Chinese Communist Party is all seeing, all knowing. They all agree they can make decisions for the long term, and everyone's on board. And in the West, our democracies are messy, and we can't get you know we can't agree on the price of fish. Yet the Chinese seem to you know build railways through mountains and all that kind of stuff. They're fighting behind the scenes like cats and dogs. You know, go back to human psychology, politicians. 
fighting for power in China, which is one of the you know the most powerful country bar the United States on the planet, it it is absolutely unthinkable that humans would all just shake hands and agree to let someone else do the you know oh yeah no that's fine no after you please no they're fighting like cats and dogs they're having you know drawn out political fights just like the West does but they're just doing it behind closed doors because that's the way the system works so I think most people need to get a grip on the idea that like China's not making better decisions they make different decisions and some part of their governments are better at some part of their government is better at doing stuff than ours but they aren't you know lapping us in terms of like their decision-making skills and their agreement and their commitment to the to the vision. Yeah, I mean that's a it's a huge bugbear of mine as well. People watch the like the opening ceremony of the Olympics and go and then they compare it to the inside view they have of our Western democracy. Yeah. And just go like we can't do anything and look at this amazing machine they have. And you're like, well, no, it's it's messy in different ways. I think you just anybody, don't know about it. Anybody who saw the footage of the former president being basically arm twisted out of the last ccp sort of general yeah. assembly meeting like that is just that is the tiniest glimpse of what must be an absolute blood fight going on 360 degrees inside this gigantic apparatus that is trying to govern 1.4 billion people the stakes of which are if you lose you go to jail or yeah yeah you, you yeah you you die they take your stuff your family possibly never it's it's right. played for the, the highest are... imaginable stakes correct yeah so that's my biggest bugbear all right a good one i think and pe something people need to understand another question from gizmo who lived in china for five years he's asking is the anger that brought these protests about do you think it's because of the injustice of the way people died and that people imagined sort of put themselves in those shoes and saw how they're locked down and go, if a fire starts here, I can imagine the same thing happening. Or do you think it's just tired of COVID zero, other factors? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to, you know, guess because it's, you know, who knows? My, my sense, and I'm basing this on having lived there and being a human myself, like how I would feel, I think it's just this sense of, exhaustion like these these lockdown like chinese people want to go outside and earn money and go to their jobs and get on the train and travel and do all the same stuff that we want to do they, they you know they, they make concessions in their day-to-day -day life around surveillance and free speech and all of those kinds of things that we know about because the up the other side of it is you know there's almost no crime they make a lot of concessions and they get a lot of stuff back from the communist party but this is not that this is different this is them saying we can't go outside for months on end we can't go to work my business has gone under because someone nearby me had covid because this policy that i now don't understand what the end goal is and then i see this thing in a room where people die in a fire so I, I think it's just as i said before the kindling is frustration i wouldn't you know i'd be very careful to ascribe it to like oh oh every soul yearns for freedom as i've seen on twitter yeah, yeah God. you know it you just go a bit mad and you can't put up with it anymore like that's i think the simplest explanation is just that right and they are highly resilient don't get me wrong but it's it's like that's not that's that's basically being in prison for a while and, and it's worth saying just just on this like a last point on this is that during covid we got all sorts of quite i would say reductionist and at times racist takes about which peoples would be most amenable or sort of, but like the, the, right. you know, the English would stuff, never bear to be locked down and that, you know, 50 million people would kick the doors open, whereas 
the obedient, like somebody else would line. And it like most of those takes have proven completely nonsense in the same way as this like yearning for freedom stuff is. It's cultural, right? Like the, the, the Chinese don't, it, like they don't, they don't have an expectation that the government can't tell them what to do. So there's obviously a higher resilience to the government telling them what to do. Like it doesn't wrangle to be said, okay, you're going to be in lockdown for three weeks. Like it does to a Texan. But that's cultural, right? Like, it's just a, it's like how you live your life. And, and, but like, there's a limit because they're human beings. Yeah. I, I guess the, the one, the one place I would push back on that is just to go that a whole bunch of places in the West whose self mythology, I won't speak about Texas, but a lot of places whose kind of self mythologized themselves as like freedom, don't also tread true. on me. When the government told them to lock down, they went, yeah, this seems like a sensible policy because otherwise sure. I'll kill grandma. And then, they went along with it just fine, sure. broadly. Yeah. So I don't know, I just, I, I instinctively push back against this idea mm. that there are like docile populations and fiery rebels and that you can make these We things. could talk about this for, for hours, so, yeah. but yeah, I, I take your point. Okay, last question, because I think this is something that I've been really interested in. There's a line of commentary, and it, I think it's a legitimate one, that just goes, okay, China is frequently accused of intellectual property theft. It is by now, we now seem to have pretty good evidence that Sinovac and Sinopharm just aren't as good at what they need to do as Pfizer, Moderna, what have you. Why, why have they either not just replicated it themselves organically or reverse engineered it or sort of had somebody break into the Moderna servers and do a download? This does not feel, why, why don't they just do that? Or why don't they as a less, I suppose, nefarious question, why don't they just buy 3 billion doses of Pfizer and Moderna? Okay, so I, I'll answer that second question really because the first one is, is beyond the scope of what I know about in the sense of like what's possible scientifically and technically. My very layman's, so let me just preface it, like I could be very wrong here, so please you know, let me know if I am, but my sense is that mRNA as a technology is very recent, it's very new. This is the first real widespread usage of it as a vaccination technology is my understanding. So my, my guess, and what you know, this is based on probably a few things that I've read over the last few years, is that it's not easy to do. You need equipment, you need expertise. It is not something like, you know, oh, we just need to download the, the schematics and we can build, you know, we can build a computer or whatever it is. We have the ability to build computers. We have the know-how. We just don't quite know what goes where. This strikes me as a bit of a, like a, oh, we don't know really what that is and we don't have the things to, to produce it. That, that's my and sense. I, and I will say that squares with during a lot of the debate over the COVID waiver from intellectual property rights, something that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies and countries in the West were saying was the intellectual property is not the problem. There aren't 500 the factories. The exactly. There aren't yeah. 500 yeah. factories we could online tomorrow if we just sent yeah. them the recipe. So, yeah, so that I guess that's a partial answer to the first one. And then the second bit is more about why didn't they import? And I think we touched on, I touched on that at the start. It's that Xi Jinping, I, I, I was saying to you before, I almost think that if there is an original sin of China's COVID from the start, it is that reaction i mean well no the, the original sin is kind of the way they dealt with the outbreak of it but stemming immediately from that was the reaction to western criticism and blame was to say we're not going to we're not going to deal with you in terms of vaccines because we don't trust you we think you're trying to take down china you're trying to isolate us you're trying to smear us so we're going to develop everything in-house that original sin is it's one of those decisions that sets a whole bunch of decisions downstream it locks them in 
like once you've done that, you then have to develop a vaccine. And then if that vaccine isn't effective, you can't go and get other vaccines. You have to, you have to, you know, keep going with that vaccine, which then flows under decisions around lockdowns and in natural immunity. It's like, it's that one thing of like, you know, I'm not saying that if they'd imported Western vaccines that everything would be fine. Why don't you just take the Western like gift and you'll be, you know, silly people like we're better than you. Not at all. And, and at that point, it was very unclear that they would be able to, that they wouldn't be able to, you know, develop a vaccine that was as effective as, as the West's. But now that that was a political decision and it was dressed up in nationalist language and it was very like Xi Jinping, China is great, we don't need the West. You can't backtrack on it, which means that you can't really go off and at least not publicly take Western aid or donations or, you know, help. And it's a great shame because, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about this all through a lens of geopolitics and power competition and, you know, adversarial relations. They're people. And like, like it, it absolutely sucks that there's, you know, one seventh of the world population is living now in a situation where COVID lockdowns have been brutal. They aren't immunized against it. They don't have natural immunity and they're at risk of dying. And like, there's a lot of old people in China and that, that, that sucks. Like just from a humanitarian perspective. Yeah. It's just it's just awful. I mean, these protests are, some, I think, something to watch. And thank you so much, John. This this episode has been far more interrogative than we yeah, normally so like to have a dialogue. So much water. <laughs> it's Cotton not just out, out yeah. of solidarity with your with your friend in Chinese lockdown. You're just <laughs> right. You know, we're generally trying to extract as much value from you as I as I possibly can on an area on which I know nothing. So thank you so much for your for your patience yeah, with my interrogations. Thank you to all of the questions that came in. As uh, I hope it was insightful at least to people too. I mean, because we ran a bit longer, and you know, we could talk for hours about China, but I think it did deserve a little bit of a longer explanation about what's going on. Yeah. And again, give us, let us know what you thought about it. We tried this approach of not just covering the, the current affairs, but we did sort of a good 15 minutes on how we got to here before we dived into these protests and what they mean. Let us know if that was completely boring to you. Let us know if any of this was completely useless and boring to you. And we will adjust as we move forward. But for now, it is my job to apologize for going slightly over time. That goes to both John it's free. and to our... <laughs> so this is bonus free content, I guess. I don't know. Double That's free. how I think about it. <laughs> You're really clinging to that. We have to start charging people like half a cent to watch so you don't have that out. And you have to, we have to deliver quality. <laughs> As always, if you enjoy this kind of content, we really recommend that you go to the links down below where we will have a lot of the readings that we relied on to put together today's show, as well as a link to subscribe to the International Intrigue newsletter to get analysis like this in under an hour. Instead, in fact, in under six minutes, every every weekday morning, unless Thanksgiving's on. So That's right. a golden rule. So with that, thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you on the next episode, unless John and I have a fight and cancel this whole thing. Who knows? Thanks, right, everyone. Thanks again. <laughs>